This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Sarah Rusbatch. After developing what she describes as a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, Sarah made the decision to remove alcohol from her life in early 2017 and has never looked back. She now works with women all over the world, helping them to a healthier and happier way of living. Don't forget to listen to the short ads at the beginning. And if you don't already do so, click the follow button and leave a review. I really hope you enjoy the show. And thanks again for all your support. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. It's so lovely to see you on here. We've been chatting for quite a while now, haven't we? We have, yeah. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure. And you're actually uh, recording this from Perth in Australia, right? And it's in the afternoon for you now. Yeah, it, it, I know. It's always funny, isn't it, when you're like looking at all these different time zones. Um, but because I'm from the UK, even though I'm in Australia, I still always know exactly what time it is. So I can phone my mum and talk to her about what's happening on the news and what the weather's like and all of that. Well, I think your weather is quite different to us at the moment. We've had a bit of a naff spring, but there you go. But uh, yeah, you do come from the UK and I thought that'd be a really good place to start. Uh, and to find out where you grew up, I'm really nosy and a lot of my listeners are as well. We like to know the whole picture. So where did you grow up and how was your childhood? Looking back now, I can see that that's probably part of the problem, right? It was that um, I grew up in lots of places. So I was born in Edinburgh. We moved when I was two down to the south of England. We moved back when I was seven to Edinburgh. We moved back to Manchester when I was 13. And so there was a lot of movement and not a huge amount of of stability for me. Um, If I kind of think about my childhood, it would be Edinburgh. It would be Scotland that I think about some of my happiest memories of childhood. 
And where it got really challenging for me was age 13, moving from Scotland to England. I had a really strong Scottish accent. I was 13. I had a terrible perm. I had loads of acne. We'd moved from this really quite um, very like comprehensive, normal school that was a little bit rough. And I got past, um, we moved to an area that had the grammar school in England. So you had to take an exam. It wasn't private, but you took an exam to get there. And I scraped through by the skin of my teeth, but I suddenly found myself in this really strict school with a very like structured uniform and people were very middle class and very smart and very bright. And there was me with my bad perm, acne, Scottish accent, 13 years old, terrible time. And that was kind of where for me, looking back, the memories become a little bit less joyful, shall we say. Yeah, I can really relate to that because I think I was 12 or 13 when we moved as well. And uh, I started in the second year of uh, the school. And it, I, I can remember being absolutely terrified walking into that classroom. But you had quite an unsettled childhood anyway, didn't you, with keep moving? Yeah, it was quite unsettling. And I think that that was where, for me, the the use of alcohol, when that came in, all I ever wanted was to fit in. All I ever wanted, because I was so used to being the new girl. I was so used to always being the one that had to try and immerse herself into established friendships. And that was why when I discovered alcohol, it was like, ah, this is how you do that really quickly. Because as soon as everyone's had a few drinks, they're telling you, I love you. And that was all like little Sarah wanted to hear at that time when she was trying to kind of, you know, find herself and fit in and make friends and stuff. And so um, like looking back, that was when, you know, one of the first things that I got from alcohol when I did first start drinking. It's really interesting as well around that age group, isn't it? Where you're going from a child developing towards being an adult there's that in-betweeny bit and we look really weird don't we (laughs) we're not a child or an adult so we have a lot of uh image issues going on I remember my hair looked like my mum would put a basin around it and just cut around it and that and also we didn't have a lot of money right and I remember I I mean I I know I was a nice lad growing up and my mum took me to a, a shoe shop at a place called Rose Hill, and the shoe shop was Dulcis, and and the in thing were these like moccasin shoes, and there were these nerdy shoes. And my mum picked up the two options, and I thought about my mum's financial situation, and I said, "Oh, they're all right, mum. These nerdy shoes," but I knew I was going to get ribbed something terrible, and I did at school, yeah. which which didn't yeah. help my own image of myself. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's just that age, isn't it? So no wonder when alcohol comes along, we kind of take that option because we think it was a quick fix, wasn't it? It's like, oh, all of a sudden I'll fit in. And I think as well, like what happened for me was when in Scotland, I was a swimmer. So I used to swim all the time. So I was pretty fit. I had, you know, I, I had to eat a lot to sustain the amount that I was swimming. And then we moved to Manchester and I stopped swimming, didn't find a swim club, just kind of was like, nah, kind of done with that. But um, I, I never really realized how much the swimming was helping my mental health, how the reason I was eating so much and not putting on weight was because I was swimming all of the time. And then I was suddenly lonely with no friends moving to another country where I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. And so I turned to sugar as um, as my coping strategy. I can remember I used to come home from school, didn't have any friends, didn't have anyone. I just had my dog. 
and I would sit there in the kitchen and I would put crumpet after crumpet into the toaster and then layer it with chocolate spread. And there was there was no amount that was too much to try and fill that hole inside me of just yeah. loneliness and sadness and feeling left out. And and then I guess alcohol becomes the thing that, you know, they say sugar's the gateway drug, right? And so it started off as that chocolate spread on the crumpets and then it, it became alcohol. And what alcohol does that's different to sugar is it also alters your entire mind as well and makes your brain function differently. Whereas sugar filled a hole in terms of comfort and emotional eating, but alcohol went the next step for that. Yeah, I mean, I recently recorded a podcast with Helen Bennett discussing the links between, you know, excessive drinking and eating. The relationship is so tied in together. And I think as kids, you know, it, you know, growing up with uh, you don't get your pudding if you don't eat all your dinner. And the reward self-soothing if you've had an upsetting situation. And I mean, I've talked about it before, about me and my peanut butter fetish. It's like, I, it was a slather, thick layers of crunchy peanut butter on thick bread relentlessly, you know, and wonder why I'm putting on weight. It's fascinating. But so how old was you when you took your first drink? So first drink, very young. Like um, I, my grandparents, I mean, looking back now, my grandfather father was an alcoholic. My grandmother probably was my dad drank a lot and so it definitely wasn't unusual for me at four or five to be sipping the top of my dad's beer he would let me have the froth on top and at probably nine or ten my grandma she lived in the south of France very European and was like well of course you can have a glass of wine with dinner darling and so it was very normalized alcohol was kind of everywhere for me growing up and then probably when I started doing it on my own, um, 14, uh, we used to fill up the soda stream when I finally um, had made some friends. Um, we'd fill up the soda stream bottles with like a mixture of Southern Comfort, Cinzano, Martini, um, Malibu, like whatever we could find. And then we'd go down the local park and we'd drink these disgusting concoctions um, sometimes we'd vomit, sometimes we wouldn't. And then we'd go down the roller rink, we'd kiss the boys from the local council estate, and then we'd go home. And that was kind of like all, all done by nine o'clock kind of thing. And so that was my um, Friday nights in Manchester, age 14 and 15. Oh, God, I bet so many people can relate to that. And uh, Cinzano and Martini, I mean, the thought of that now is absolutely awful I, I think i drank a really large bottle of martini and just threw it up in my stereo lid one day and uh, you know it, uh, why does this not put you off forever i don't understand it i know, I know. it's crazy I, yeah so how did that manifest then through your teens i just loved getting drunk like i can remember i used to look forward to it because it was a time when i was with a group that i would feel accepted I felt like there wasn't the barrier that was there before of me being the new girl. Now we were all the same. Um, it was a way of having confidence. I was at an all girls school of, of meeting boys, of talking to boys, going to parties. But also it was it was accepted. It was everywhere. It was, you know, I didn't drink differently to other people at that point or certainly not the people that I hung out with. Um, and then probably around 16, 17, started dabbling with recreational drugs um so kind of came off the booze a bit we used to yeah get into up to all sorts of nonsense uh where that was concerned with taking acid with taking ease and speed and and and, and doing drugs quite regularly either at someone's house down at the park going to clubs 
Um, and that just became that that rite of passage where that was even more of a, a, a thing that that gave me because again, it was all about the connection, the way I felt if I was out doing ease and meeting all these people that were like, I love you. That was all I ever wanted to hear. And so I just clung to that. Like now, of course, I realized it wasn't real. It was completely fake. But for someone who just craved connection and craved fitting in, the alcohol and then the drugs served a really big purpose for me. Yeah, that's something I didn't really get into, to be honest, right. all that. So it might have been your environment. I don't know. And, and the other thing with me, I realised is that because I, I hooked onto alcohol so much, I kind of knew exactly where I was with it, and the drugs scared me because I knew with my addictive personality that if I went down that road, I could easily get hooked on that as well. So it's almost like a warning to myself. I, I kind of knew myself even from an earlier age you know so I might have the odd joint but even one night I had too much and I remember being in a really bad place with it you know like suicidal thoughts so I stayed away from that and I remember I did take half an E once and then I thought we hadn't done anything so I took the next bit and I just yeah I know but I I woke up in the morning with about 14 cans of lager next to me that I'd open one and hadn't drunk it and then opened the next one and drank it but I was manically depressed for about two or three weeks after like really really low in mood and and I've never gone near it since so and I feel grateful for that because knowing that me as I am I think I'd have got myself in horrendous trouble with drugs I mean it's bad enough with the booze but so after that you went from alcohol to that then what happened yeah so that was like through uni um we're talking about as well remember I grew up in the north in Manchester this period in the 90s where rave music was coming onto the scene the hacienda was very prevalent in in my kind of location um, and in the age group it was what kind of everyone was doing at that time and then went to uni up north as well and then of course alcohol was still everywhere alcohol was still the thing that I used as my way of meeting people and fast-tracking friendships you know because you know university you're down fresh as week pound a pint all of that and then left uni and 1997 moved down to London and um, got a job in recruitment and it was just an extension of university. Like my job interview, the fourth stage of the job interview process was going to the pub to do shots of Sambuca to see how well you could handle your booze to decide whether or not you got the job. And so, of course, I passed with flying colours, but that kind of sets a precedent for what's to come because you're suddenly living in London. No one drives in London. You've got money for the first time in your life after living, you know, skin on student loans. You're suddenly earning a salary. It was a company where pretty much everybody that worked there was under 25. So you've got all these grads that have come from all over the country to work in this one building. And it was just an extension of university, but with having to make a few phone calls in between. But there was always someone to go to the pub with. Monday nights, Tuesday nights, you were always there. And and I remember even looking back at that, my manager at the time saying to me, Sarah, you've got huge potential and I can see you doing really well in this business, but I'm really concerned about the way um, you you go with your drinking. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, I just thought I was a fun, happy drunk. And she was like, you, you always seem to get more drunk than anybody else. You always, there always seems to be a story about you 
that whereas everybody else had an off switch, for me, there were there never was that off switch. We used to have something called Champagne Friday in the office on the last Friday of every month. And those are the days when we used to smoke in the office as well. So you'd sit at your desk guzzling this, this home-brewed champagne that was just disgusting. You'd smoke your fags and you probably hadn't eaten any lunch. You may have had a client lunch where you'd had a few wines at lunchtime anyway, so you were still going. And there was just always a story about me. There was always something that I'd fallen over or I'd end up in a toilet cubicle with an inappropriate boy or I'd just done something that I would never... My work persona was in direct conflict and contrast to this person that I became when I drank. And she could see it, but I couldn't. It's really interesting, isn't it, that part of the job interview was to see how you could cope after a drink. And the other interesting thing is what you said there when you said everyone else seemed to have an off switch. I mean, in hindsight, is that actually accurate or is that you were the one that actually stood out in the crowd? I think I stood out, but I think that I liked being at the point of not knowing what was going on. Whereas I think other people don't like feeling out of control. Whereas I loved feeling out of control. I loved having just being off my head. Like that was what I craved most of the time. And so whereas for other people, they might be like, whoa, I'm feeling really pissed. I better have a glass of water. I'd be like, whoa, I'm feeling really pissed. Yeah, let's bring it on. Let's have another drink. And that I think that was the difference between others who did drink a lot but reaching that point of going, mm, yeah, I'd better stop. But but that awareness wasn't there for me. So have you since then worked out why? I think I loved the feeling of complete escapism. I mm. think that, you know, growing up, there were other concerns for me in, in you know, mum and dad weren't terribly happy. They stayed together for the kids, as lots of parents did in that generation. But it meant growing up in a house that was quite, Hence, a lot of the time I didn't ever feel completely I don't mean safe physically because there was no abuse or anything like that but you know that that safe warm cuddly feeling of being in a house where you are just surrounded by love that wasn't what it was for me and I think that when your nervous system is become so dysregulated from constantly being on edge and constantly wondering when you put your key in the lock and come home from school that day what am I going to find when I get home? What's the atmosphere going to be like? You're constantly reading the room. You're constantly hypervigilant with that amygdala part of your brain, just going, what's going on? What's going on? Is there a threat? Is do I? What do I need to do for survival? And when I was really pissed, none of that mattered. And it was like I could just completely switch off and relax. I'm, I'm starting to realise I work now completely on my nervous system regulation, and that's the, been the biggest part of my sobriety has been has been on my nervous system yeah I relate to that and we can cover this subject a bit later because you did the um, the same course as I did that concentrates on the nervous system and it's a fascinating yeah. subject but I what I relate to that is uh, you know I had a good upbringing but there wasn't a lot of physical love there wasn't a lot of uh, I'm proud of you come here give me a hug oh, I love you, you were, you know, all that business. And there was a, a separation when I was 14, me and my sister never got on. And then something happened with our partners. They got together after that. There, there was a lot of chaos in my life, right? And and so when you say about disconnection, I can completely relate to that. It, it, we disconnect 
from the past as a safety mechanism, right? And how we do it with with alcohol because it's an immediate disconnection, isn't it? But the trouble is with it, the more you do it and the older you get, the more you get used to doing that and it doesn't last as long. So for me, I would drink really quickly to get disconnected, but within an hour or two, they started to come back in a vengeance, right? So I would drink more to blackout. So I didn't even have to deal with them. So it escalated in my drinking to the litre of vodka a day until I passed out. It, it changed, you know, and did you find that? I found that I never wanted the buzz to end. Yeah, exactly like you say. And so the buzz that I would start to get, I didn't want it to end. And if I felt myself starting to come down, I was like, right, I've got to find a way to keep this going. So, you know, everyone else, it comes to the end of the night and everyone's like, oh, that was a good night. And I'm like, what do you mean? We're not going home now. I'm going to go find another party or another club or something else to do. But, and and no one else had that need. They, they'd, they'd, they'd had filled their cup. They'd had a great night. They'd done some dancing. They'd had a few drinks. They were ready. It was midnight. They were ready to go home. And I couldn't bear the thought of that. Yeah, I, I get that. So when, when she mentioned to you about your drinking at work, did that kind of burst your bubble a little bit? I was in complete denial. And so I was just like, but my drinking never impacts my work. I've never taken a sick day. I've never taken a hangover day. Like I refused to see, but I had a niggle. There was definitely a niggle within me, but I just didn't want to hear it. So I didn't, I just fought it. Um, I stayed at the company for quite a long time. And then I decided to go traveling um, and went and did a year like overseas trip, which again, just fed more of that. Um, how do you meet people? How do you make friends? You just get drunk. And then all of a sudden you got loads of mates. And so that was kind of what I did for a year. Um, and then came back to London and did another few years in London and, and met my husband. And then I got pregnant after we got married. It took a long time to try um, to, to conceive. And there was a lot of fertility issues because, of course, it turns out when you're drinking and by this point doing a lot of cocaine as well, um, and you're not really resting your nervous system and you're not getting enough sleep. It's not really conducive to, um, to, to, to growing a baby inside you. Right. And so I finally did a little bit of a detox um, and then did get pregnant um, with the help of fertility treatment and didn't even want alcohol. Like it wasn't a problem to not drink while I, like I just wanted to be pregnant so much. It was something that was so important to me, but one of the hardest things for me, Dave was my very first Mother's Day and I was reflecting on this the other day because on Sunday it was Mother's Day in Australia and my very first Mother's Day William was nine weeks old and it was the day after my birthday and so we arranged to go to a pub in Clapham and have a lunch and I brought William in the pram and we I was just catching up with friends for the first time and I just assumed my drinking would now be different because I'm a mum so I just assumed I don't have to even have words with myself, like I'm a mum now. Um, and I just drank like I'd always drank. And the next day, Dave, I can't even tell you, I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. I was disgusted at myself. I still feel how I felt that day, the shame, the guilt, the disgust, the remorse, because how, could, how had I not changed? How was I still drinking at this this level 
And it just, I just switched straight back into it. The first time I was in an environment where people were just topping up my glass and, and I just kept on going. And I remember my husband brought my son into me the next morning and said, happy Mother's Day. It was my first ever Mother's Day. And I didn't even want to hold him because I felt so dirty and disgusting that I, he was this pure, beautiful little baby. And I just didn't understand what I was doing and why I'd done it. And that stayed with me for a really long time. But it was still another nine years before I quit booze. That's the scary bit, isn't it? One, how you just flip the switch again. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard people who are 15 years sober and they have a drink and they're back on it, which is really, really scary. And secondly, how riddled with shame and guilt you were that morning, but still carried on. And I can relate to that as well because my whole Eastbourne debacle, when I come back from that and sat in the doctor's surgery for an hour, I was back drinking within two or three days of that where I was at a proper rock bottom. It's frightening, isn't it? Yeah. It's frightening that you you can know how much you don't want to do something but feel so powerless when it's there offered to you to do anything but do it. And that, I think, is... There's addiction, right? There's there's problem drinking. There's um, but you know, and and this is why the work that you and I do is so important because it's not about. I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't describe myself as an alcoholic. I didn't drink every single day, but I still drank in a way that was hugely problematic for me and and caused me a lot of mental health issues um, as well as physical health issues, and still found it hard to stop and this is why i always nail it home that it's not about the quantity because i i did drink every day right but there could be someone that's drinking two glasses of wine a day that would feel just as terrible as me on a leap with vodka a day it can affect their mental health like you've just described perfectly how you lived your life and then you go a few days as a gray area drinker and don't drink but you binge at the weekend and if someone said to you, just stop, Sarah, come on, you haven't got a problem. You, you're already telling yourself, well, I, I don't want to stop. I, I can't stop. You know, so it's that forever hamster wheel of doom, I call it, you know, where you just can't get off it. So moving on from that, right? So you did the traveling, you, you had your baby and you say it took nine years. What happened in those nine years? Did you did that escalate? Did you carry on the way you were? What happened? So the biggest thing that happened was um, nine months after having William, so six months after that incident on the Mother's Day, we made that we moved to Australia, and um, I completely underestimated the impact that would have, um, and. I felt pregnant as soon as we got there. So then all of a sudden, we'd moved to another side of the world. I, By the, this point in my career, I was director of a very successful recruitment firm that was going really, really well. And I got a lot of self-meaning, purpose, sense of achievement from, from my job. So all of a sudden, I was in Australia with no friends, no family, two kids under two, a husband who loved him to bits, but wouldn't emotional support let's just say is not one of his strengths um and I was so lonely and all of the old trauma came flooding back of being this new girl that didn't know anyone I'd be going to like monkey music with my two tiny little children desperately trying to to make friends and get people to like me but 
I think I just came across as some desperate, weird English girl that was just like trying to swap phone numbers with everyone she met. And and I didn't have alcohol as my crutch then because for part of the time I was pregnant with Scarlett, so I wasn't drinking. And I just was like, how do you make friends when you don't have alcohol to do that? So it took a really long time to settle. And after having Scarlett and when I'd finished um, breastfeeding her, I then just went back to the bottle in a different way. Because whereas before my socialising had been always social, I was always the party girl, I was always the one, but I didn't really drink on my own very much. Whereas now we're on the other side of the world with not really many friends um, and alcohol then became the friend. It became the the thing that made all of those uncomfortable emotions go away. And I can remember I used to stand at the end of the driveway at five o'clock and I'd have a screaming baby in one arm, a a screaming toddler in the other. I'd have tears streaming down my face and I'd just be watching for Gus's truck turning into our road so I could just hand him the kids. And then I'd go and sit in the back garden and drink a bottle of wine and smoke 10 fags and, and just have something that just made all those horrible feelings go away. It's a, what I call a pattern match. It was a perfect pattern match from your past of when you were 12, 13 with your spotty face and perm, you know, and, and your neural pathways go there, didn't it? What I need, I need an instant resolution to how I'm feeling now. Ah, this would do it. But what's happened is because you hadn't made the new friends there, you felt very lonely and isolated. And this is this where the toxic relationship starts to change isn't it when you start drinking at home when you're isolating and that's what happened to me you know it completely changed and then I didn't want to socialize and that's a whole new uh dynamic did that happen to you where you were were drinking more on your own I was doing both so I kind of didn't care either way it was like if I was because by this point I was drinking and I you know I, I had friends I had people to go out with there was um it was a lot formed for me on me needing alcohol for that that confidence and that connection um but then I would equally drink at home Gus drank a lot as well so we would drink a lot together and so alcohol just became more and more prevalent through um the through my 30s and early 40s and then a couple of things happened in 2017 where they were probably wake-up calls the first one was I'd gone to a 40th birthday party and I drank a bottle of champagne before I even got there. And then I got there and I just were doing shots of tequila, all sorts. Um, Went outside to have a fag, crouched down to put my cigarette out and had no reflexes, toppled over, fell forward, didn't put my hands out, landed on my face on a concrete driveway. So split my lip, cut my nose, cuts, blood, all sorts all over my face. Got taken home and put to bed, which I don't really remember. And then I woke up the next morning and Scarlett was five, and she just stood there going, Mummy, Mummy, what happened to your face? And I just woke up, and you know that split second when you don't remember what's happened, but you know something bad has happened, and then you remember what it is. And I looked at myself in the mirror, and I just couldn't believe what I could see. And the worst thing was, Dave, that that night I couldn't even put a cup to my mouth because my lips I couldn't have a drink but it was inconceivable to me not to drink because I didn't know any other way to make those feelings go away so I was drinking wine through a straw out of the corner of my mouth just as some way to get that into me to make all the feelings go away and that yeah looking back 
another sign. And on the Monday, I went to the local pharmacist and I said, what what can I do about all of these things on my face? I said, I, I fell over. And she gave me some arnica and all sorts. And then she said, oh, come here. And she handed me a card for domestic violence. Oh and God. I just stood there and these tears just started streaming down my face because my husband wouldn't touch a fly. And to stand there and have this woman thinking that I, I'd been beaten up by him because of my drink, oh, it, it was just horrible, as you can probably imagine. That's really powerful, Sarah. If you stood there and say, actually, I've done it to myself. I've beaten myself up in a way. Yeah. It, it's really emotional. And I, I, I've done that where I fell into a hedge so drunk that I lost all my mobility and I couldn't get out of the hedge. Somehow I got out and I was ripped to pieces. And I didn't really remember till the next day. And a neighbor told me that she walked past and she tried to help me. And she just left me there because she couldn't get me out. I was just flailing around in this hedge. And it's the shame and that, that comes with that. And it's like, who have I become? What have I turned into? And yeah. did um, Gus ever say anything to you regarding your drinking? I think, no, no, that's not true. I think twice I can ever remember him saying to me, but we kind of had an unwritten pact that was, we never judge or criticise each other for each other's drinking. It was like, we just, we never agreed to that but it was like a thing that was in our marriage where we both were big drinkers we both had nights where we went too far and we never would criticize or judge the other so there was only that day I remember he I remember him walking out to the garden on that Sunday night when I was drinking the wine through a straw and he I just remember the look of pity in his eyes and he was like are you drinking and I was like I'm just having one and he kind of went oh and went inside and and I knew he wanted to say more but I also knew that he'd been in states before and I'd never made him feel bad for it and so it was we were kind of enablers for each other in yeah, many I was ways. Gonna say that yeah and so so I, I healed from that and then three weeks later I was at a friend's birthday a champagne brunch free-flowing champagne for three hours it started at 12 I got home at two o'clock in the morning so 14 hours of, of, you know, pretty big bender. And Gus was going fishing really early that morning. So I was on cricket and William came into my room about I don't know, quarter to seven in the morning because they start very early in Australia. Um, and he kind of shook me and went, mom, mom, um, are you are you ready to take me to cricket? And he's there with all his cricket gear on and his bag ready. And I just was like, I just knew I couldn't drive. I just knew that I was over the limit. Like I just by the sickness that I felt and the sweats and my hands were like shaking. And then I was like, I can't take my son to the thing that he loves most in the world because on Sunday morning, his mum is still pissed and can't drive. And those two things, the, the falling over and then that were the wake up calls. And then as it happened, I spent all of that day just lying on the sofa as you do when you're just filled with shame and remorse and regret and self-loathing. And I was scrolling Facebook as you do because you've got no energy to do anything else. And I was in a running group at the time because this was the yin and yang of my life. If I run half marathons, I'm not an alcoholic. If I run half marathons, my drinking can't be that bad. And someone in my running group posted that they'd read the Annie Grace book and, and it had changed their relationship with alcohol. And this is 2017 where there weren't the same material and books and podcasts and everything that there was. 
So I was like, ha, huh, I'm going to get that book and read it. And this is it. I'm going to do 21 days and I'm going to just reset. That's what I need to do. Read the book, complete eye opener, did 100 days, felt amazing. And then got to the 100 days, faded effect bias quick kicks in. You're not that bad. It's all right. right? You're never going to not drink again. That would just be weird, but it's fine. You've done 100 days. So now you'll be able to moderate and everything will be all right. And you know how the story goes. Within two weeks, you know, you're back drinking where you were before. And that carried on for two years. So for two years, I kept taking these breaks, going back to drinking, taking breaks, going back to drinking. But I just never, ever forgot how I felt that first time I did those 100 days. It was just for the very first time, this it was like, this is what it's like to wake up liking yourself every morning. This is what it's like to feel positive, to have energy, to to like who you are, to feel proud of what you're doing, to be present with your kids, to to do the things you say you're going to do. Like, And I just never forgot that. And, and when I finally reached that realization of going, I'm never going to be a moderate drinker, I've got a decision to make, I either quit or I carry on like I am, which is just freaking exhausting. I made that decision. And so April 2019, I set the date. And you know what, all I felt was excitement. And I was going to a friend's 40th the night before, and I was planning a big shebang. This was going to be my big night out. I got my hair done. I got my makeup done. I bought a new dress. I was going to like go party hard. And then the next day was the, the rest of my life. And I got there, had two drinks, went home because I just was so ready. I was so ready. Um, and then and I had the tools. I knew what I needed because I'd done 100 days three times by this point. So I knew... I had to dig deep. I had to get clear on my why. I had to set some other goals. I had to keep inspired, listening to the podcast, reading the books. I joined a community of women in the UK who were all there supporting and cheering each other. Um, and then slowly but surely, I just knew more and more and more that this was going to be forever. And this is what I always say to people when they try and what I call a slip up and not a relapse is you can really take from that experience bit like an apprenticeship and that's what you did right and it's really interesting what you said about that night this big final blowout and it's almost two drinks and you go do you know what I just want to roll my sleeves up and get cracking with it now and that's really powerful actually yeah I was just ready for the rest of my life to start yeah and I believe as well weren't we messaging at the beginning as well because I was three months sober I think when you decided, I'm sure we were messaging at the beginning yes, on Instagram. We were. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I was messaging you going, I don't know what to do. My partner still drinks and, and I'm finding it really hard. And so that was when we first connected. Yeah. Because we're very similar on our sobriety date. So what happened after that? How Was that it? Did you just make your mind up? Because that's what I did. It was like, I'm done with this. And that's the end of yeah. it. I just Non-negotiable. Was it. Yeah. It was non-negotiable because... I'd, I'd spent two years trying to moderate, two years, and, and, I, and I had full embodiment of my decision of I know I can't moderate. I had full acceptance of that. There was no doubt. There was no niggle. There was no, oh, but what if? There was just none of that. I just knew that I was committing to this other way of doing life. And I'm the type of person that's very all or nothing. Yeah. And so, as most drinkers are, right? And so yeah. it was like, I'm just going to throw myself into my sobriety and have and create the best life that I can for myself. And how did you do that, say, the first few months? So I 
signed up for a half marathon and I and that was was huge for me to have a goal I've done half marathons before but I wanted a PB it was a focus that was outside of my sobriety do you know what I don't even think that I needed to rely on too many tools at that point because the decision was made and I was excited about the decision the hardest time had been the 100 days before where you know you, you are counting the days and you're crossing them off I don't think I even like crossed off days or did any of that this time because it it was just so I felt it in my bones that this was what it was going to be so I knew what I had to do I had to make sure I still stayed connected to people but not put myself in situations where people would pissed all the time around me so I did lots of runs and breakfasts and lunches with friends I made sure that I stayed inspired I stayed close to the Facebook group that I was in with women on that journey I I started to that was 2019 and then end of 2019 COVID hit and and early 20 and that was when I um I said I'm gonna change career and I'm gonna retrain and so I retrained as a health and wellness coach first um and then I knew that women in Australia, there there wasn't the support in Australia that I could see was available in the UK. And I could see how many people around this time, 2019, 2020, were voicing up and starting to talk about sobriety and starting to talk about the other way of living. But I didn't know anyone in Australia that was doing that. And that's when I made the decision to to start helping women in Australia. And so I did one interview that went into a, a big online publication over here, shared my story. And 8,000 women contacted me. And wow. on the back, and that was when I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> there are so many women who are trapped in that cycle where I was of the loneliness of parenthood, the stress of doing the juggle of everything, boredom of not having other things in their life outside of getting pissed and not having any other hobbies. And, and that was when I, I knew that it was, it, I felt such a calling to be of service to other, other women. Uh, and you did the same course of speed, didn't you? Uh, Grey area drinking course with Jolene Park. And I found that fascinating because the the interesting thing for me was I wasn't a grey area drinker. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually realised that that was so much more specialist, you know, like really for me, I needed professional help to detox and that. But I'm that kind of guy as well that once I make my mind up, I'm done. So I had to be very careful about withdrawing from alcohol. But I made my mind up. I cut those ties. You know, I cut the codependence from me in alcohol and I was done. I slammed the door in its face. And by me doing, I mean, I've done loads of different courses and mental health first aider, uh, peer mentoring. I, I worked in a rehab, well, drop-in centre in Clapham for 18 weeks, you know, and, and I learned such a lot from that. But it was Jolene Parts course that I actually learned about the nervous system. And you can touch on that because it's such an important part that doesn't really get covered a lot, does it? And I think the place to start with that is when our nervous system is dysregulated, we're in that fight or flight state. And so we're producing excess adrenaline, cortisol, we are amygdala, the part of our brain that's a bit like a lighthouse and it's constantly looking for threat and danger. It's hypervigilant and it's constantly on. And my nervous system was like that all of the time. And because alcohol, it works on the inhibitory neurotransmitters and causes a big release of GABA, which is what makes us feel calm and relaxed. That's why so many of us with a dysregulated nervous system end up turning to alcohol because 
We don't have the tools to know how to manage our nervous system ourselves. But all we know is that when we drink alcohol, we feel relaxed. And when we feel drink alcohol, we feel much calmer. So we keep doing it without understanding what's the driving force here. And so for me, the journey of starting to understand my nervous system has meant I've done several nervous system regulation courses. I've studied with Jolene. I take supplements now that increase my GABA because I know I'm really deficient in GABA. I do a lot of meditation and breath work. I do a lot of yin yoga. There's just practices that have to become my non-negotiables that train and teach my body to know it's safe. And I didn't have that before. All I had before, the only thing in my toolbox was alcohol. And the only thing we know is that solves the problem, right? We don't look further than that. And you you have to do the work when you stop drinking. It's not as simple as just stopping drinking. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, past trauma. Uh, that's not always the case. But as we've just said, there's different levels of trauma. So it could be the feeling of not being enough. And that comes from somewhere. When you look a little bit deeper and you explore it, you realize actually you might not have been hugged or, or kissed as a child and told they're proud of you. You know, it, 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 that's mild traumatic experience growing up that manifests into your life of feeling insecure and not wanted or not accepted and where you, you were uh, moved about all your life. So there was a the feeling of being unsettled. So when you moved to Australia, the pattern match there was from your past of being unsettled and we turned to alcohol. But when you learn to regulate your nervous system, these are practical things, aren't they? Like I, I realized that uh, I'm very low in vitamin D. I'm low in serotonin and one of my dopamine receptors doesn't work basically. So there's all these things that I've got to work on to, to almost just be running at a, an even keel but now I know these things I can work at those things so I'm generally okay every single day and I also realize I've got that all or nothing mentality so I've just climbed the mountain in Morocco I can't keep doing that so I've, I've got to find things to to live my life normally you know whatever normal is but this is why it's so fascinating to learn about your nervous system and what you say about supplements putting in, in place like magnesium and zinc and vitamin D and B12. And, you know, they're so important to explore, aren't they? Yeah. I did a DNA test, actually, and, and discovered that I have a snip on my gene that makes B12. Um, and so I will always have to take B12 as a supplement because my body um, doesn't absorb it or struggles to make it or whatever. And so... This information is so useful to know because when it's the kind of stuff that makes you feel pretty crap when you're deficient in B12. But if you don't know that, then you, you, you don't know why you're not feeling great all the time. It's so true what you said. Like so many people, they there's so many people in the sober world promoting sobriety in a positive way, which it is. But they just are passing on the message. Oh, you just remove alcohol and then everything's fine. And in actual fact, for a lot of people, when you remove alcohol, everything's pretty shit for a while because alcohol has been serving, as you say, the problem is not alcohol. The problem is why you were drinking in the first place. But we've almost forgotten what that problem was because alcohol's become such a problem. We don't realize it's not about removing alcohol. That's the first easy part in many ways. 
It's actually looking at, well, why were you drinking and what's your need for alcohol? And is it a neurotransmitter imbalance? Is it little T or big T trauma? Is it nervous system dysregulation? Is it just too much stress and overwhelm? Like we've got to address like the three reasons that I see most people drinking. And I'm sure you'll, you probably have the same. I'd be interested to know, but it's stress, boredom and loneliness. And they're three pretty uncomfortable emotions that none of us really want to sit with and an experience and so we drink to make them go away and, and some people can say well I don't have any trauma from my past and when they work with me and I explore that I quite often uncover it within 20 minutes actually what you might feel is not a trauma the big T as you correctly say there are levels of it right and you know I I uh, did a post today about Matt Willis. He he was in an incredible, yeah, yeah. And, and about how he disconnected from his past because it was too painful. But that the alcohol just masks that past keep popping up, right? And when you stop drinking, as you say, all of a sudden it's like buses, and it? it all comes along from the past. It like I describe it as the layers of your life in a suitcase and you open the lid, you're not going to pull it all out and throw it all over the floor and go, oh, where do I start? Oh, look, there's childhood trauma. Let's start there. You're not. You have to take your time. And the first bit is to take the time to stop drinking, concentrate on your nervous system, concentrate on your mindset, educate yourself as much as you can, get support, find a community, and then you will know like some people are six months in and they start to feel like, who am I? I don't know. You know, what does my future look like? And I don't know who I am because I describe it as me being an actor all my life. I played a role with several people. And then all of a sudden the theater closed and they gave me my jacket and said, right on your way. And I'm standing there outside the theater wondering what to do, but you have to have self-compassion as well for yourself and think, you know what? I am where I am. I'm doing my best to change how it is and try and find ways, gentle ways to move forward. Yeah. And and the other thing, thinking back, when you asked me the question, what did you do when you quit drinking? The biggest thing that I did in 2019 was I got a therapist and I've been seeing a therapist regularly for four years. And it's been the greatest gift of self-care I've ever given myself because slowly but surely we have peeled back the layers and I've been able to heal so much of that childhood trauma and and people balk at the word trauma and as you say like I don't have trauma but trauma is anything that's stored in your nervous system where you haven't been able to discharge that adrenaline and cortisol in an appropriate way so if you're bullied if you're humiliated if you've been put down if you were one of six kids that just never got seen enough and, and enough love and attention it doesn't have to be sexual abuse and death and war trauma can be just always the last one to get picked for in the netball team at school or, or, or whatever, like just constantly feeling not good enough. And so being able to explore that in a safe way with a brilliant therapist is life-changing. Yeah, 100%. And I've done the same, Sarah. I, I've had a therapist for years. And ironically, I was sitting when I was drinking. And when I stopped drinking, I came clean. And I said, you know what? A lot of the time we saw each other, it <clears throat> stored in my mind and I would drive home thinking about it and start drinking again and wake up the next day and I'd forgotten it. You know, so when I stopped drinking, it started to sink in. I started to process it in a healthy way. So by the time I went to the next session, 
I'd worked out that part of the previous session, you know. And also, there's another element to it. You have more money to invest in your self-development. So don't be afraid of it. It, It's so healthy. And I look back at posts I did on Facebook 10 years ago, and I'm, like, embarrassed. I'm like, who am I? Who was I then? It's, it's you know, my favorite word, journey. But it's a journey of self-discovery, and you can get support with that. And I think it's really important. And and I just love what you how you frame that. Then it doesn't have to be childhood abuse or you know it, it and it can be relevant to your life now. You know if you're in a narcissistic relationship or you've had a, a difficult time in your life career wise, it could be anything. But alcohol's the solution to the problem, isn't it? it it's a fascinating conversation, and I just want to touch before we go as well. And if you don't mind me asking, um, does Gus still drink? So he stopped shortly after me, um, after watching me go on my journey for two years of stopping, starting, stopping, starting. He stopped for just over three years. And then he decided to have a drink again. And he said it was just, he used to call it his mate, his mate that would sit on his shoulder and whisper in his ear, go on, have another, have another, have another. And the first time he had a drink, he was like, that fucking mate was back again straight away. Like it had been three years and was just there. So he's like, yeah, off it again. It it was because he never, ever did what I did in terms of trying to stop and then moderating and trying to do all of that. He just one day just went, right, I'm stopping. And and he did for three over three years. But then he was curious to see what it would be like for him after. And the mate was still there. So he he stopped again. Yeah. Thank the Lord. That would have changed the dynamic, wouldn't it? Because one of the the biggest questions I get asked as a coach is how to deal with sobriety when the partner still drinks. It's it's a big, big question because the dynamics change in a relationship, don't they? They really do. And I've seen some relationships survive it and I've seen some that don't. And but fundamentally, I think the problem for a lot of people is that they they haven't found a ritual of connection outside of alcohol. Like we ended up in a couple's therapy room, sitting there going, we don't even talk to each other anymore. We don't even really like each other anymore. Like we just are so disconnected and we were both so proud of our sobriety. But we just, we, we used to come home from work and we'd go and sit in the garden. I'd have a wine, he'd have a beer, we'd smoke a fag behind the washing line and then we'd go back in and deal with the kids. And then we stopped doing that because we stopped drinking, but we also stopped talking. And so the therapist sat there and went, well, can you see the problem here? You don't show each other attention. You don't show each other, like listen to each other, give each other space to talk because alcohol was the crutch or the, the connection point that, that, that meant you talk. And so we then had to switch things up a bit and, and it doesn't sound quite so exciting as having a beer and a fag although that's not really that exciting but we, you know we walk together now we we go for walks most night and just check in how was your day we um we make sure that we prioritize time together and because you get so complacent in so many marriages we you know particularly when you've been together for a really long time and so we've had to work at it it hasn't been easy for sure no I hear that and you know it's what you call a liquid relationship isn't it where, where you you base your entire relationship on going out drinking and getting pissed and having wild sex and you know and when it all stops it's you go on your own journey in your own way 
and it's so easy to disconnect. And that's why I always encourage couples to, to ask, how is the bright, how is it for you being sober? How am I in your life being sober? You know, ask different questions, explore each other's thoughts, you know, because we, we, we go off on our own in our own way, don't we? It's your own journey and it's so healthy to check in. It is. And, and I've had clients whose husbands have said to them, if you stop drinking, I'll leave you. Yeah. Uh, because but I think that comes from a place of fear. And the yeah. fear is we're, we're not good. What are we going to do together if you stop drinking? Um, and so, you know, we, we have to go gently, but we have to explore and we have to remember that the path will unfold as the path will unfold, but you can't stay drinking to make someone else happy. And there's the other element is when someone does stop and the other one doesn't, that person changes. They start to look healthier. They start to act more positive, you know, and it leaves the other person behind. And then that taps into their issues with alcohol and think, well, I'm losing them and I'm going to lose them to someone else because they're changing so much now and I can't do anything about my own drinking. I can't change to fit in with them and that, there's the insecurity there. So there's so many questions yeah. that arise, but I'm so pleased that he managed to turn that around as well. And before we go, what are you up to now? What What's on the horizon? I'm writing a book, which is Yay. exciting. That's hard, um, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's very all-consuming at the moment, but um, but I'm loving the process, and I feel so utterly grateful to have the opportunity. So I'm hoping that will come out um, if all goes to plan early next year. Um, and I'm really passionate about getting and doing more on in the corporate space as well, Dave. So starting to do more talks in corporates about, you know, we've got to change cultures. Um, I've got clients who I have to sit down with and they you know, they work for law firms here in Australia and they're having to talk about, well, what event have you got this week? But what are you going to say is your excuse for not drinking this week? Because they have so much pressure, you know, put on them. So, I mean, God, I want to take over the world, as I'm sure do you. I want to talk in corporates. I want to talk in schools. I want to um, be able to just just support people. It's not about just saying, right, you just got to quit drinking. I want to help people to understand what we have to add in when we take alcohol out so that our life has meaning and purpose. Oh, I couldn't have said that better, Sarah. That is amazing. I think everyone listening to this podcast will really love you. So thank you for shining a light on this wonderful new life without alcohol. And um, one day I hope to meet you. I hope you're going to come to the UK. I will definitely be over next year and we're definitely going to do a party together. I'm holding you to it. We're going to do it. We're going to have a big bells and whistles, alcohol-free party together. Amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. You've been an amazing guest and you take care of yourself. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.